Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast with me, Scott Chaloner. This podcast, just like the Leaders' Council itself, is all about recognising and celebrating those people who keep this country running. We exist to give leaders a voice outside of their own organisation and to support them in the same way that they support their staff every single day of the week. Now, if you are in a leadership position yourself and would like to have your voice heard on the national stage, then please do go to leaderscouncil.co.uk forward slash apply. Now, joining me on today's programme on a cloudy spring morning here in the capital is Steve Imber. Steve is the Managing Director of Oncology Imaging Systems, a specialist supplier of high-tech medical devices for use in radiotherapy. Um, Steve, very warm welcome to yourself this morning and thank you so much for taking the time to join us on the show. Thank you very much for the invite. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Steve. And um, I think a good place to start would be by addressing the elephant in the room. And that's the fact that we're recording this in mid to late May 2021. And we are still in the grip of the COVID-19 global pandemic and have been for the best part of 14 months. So looking back over this period, how has all of this affected you and your business, would you say? There's certainly different areas that have affected the business dramatically some in a positive way and some in a slightly negative way. Our, our business is providing high-tech equipment to the radiotherapy services across the country and with cancer patients not being able to necessarily attend appointments or go for screening, then that's had a lot, lot of a long-term effect on the way that cancer services are working and that has delayed some of our projects. It's also meant that we've had some staff that have not been able to work in their normal way, so we've had to we've had to readjust ourselves by having people working at home a lot more. We've had issues with uh, product supply, and it's it's been a headache. But we are starting to come out of the other side. We're starting to see some of our customers um, treating more patients again, doing more diagnostic work, and hopefully that's going to sort itself out in the very near future so people get back on track with their diagnosis and treatment plans. It's quite staggering the impact that it's had on like non-urgent medical appointments, isn't it, this uh, pandemic? Um, I read a little bit of data just the other day, actually, that some sort of simple dental checkups, for example, have been delayed until 2024. And I can imagine something very, very similar with of course, routine cancer treatments um, as well. And even though we're sort of starting to emerge from social restrictions now, we've got that sort of roadmap out of lockdown there. Um, are you finding that there's maybe still a hold on one or two of the projects that you would have been doing? Yeah, without a doubt. I think a lot of hospitals are still reluctant to let organisations back into the hospitals unless it's for really key urgent service work. And that has definitely put put us on the on the back foot. So we we are probably three to six months behind on some of the projects that we thought we'd have completed by now. Which is staggering, really, isn't it? That you've sort of been set back uh, that far. And in the early days of the pandemic, when you were sort of staring down the barrel of this um, sort of crisis and this situation, um, how easy was it to sort of? maintain composure and also manage anxiety amongst yourself and your colleagues? Because I can imagine that the mental health side of things has maybe sort of taken a little bit of a toll during this time as well. Well, that's a good question. That really comes down to a lot of, a lot of gut feeling about how you, the way that you 
how you treat your staff and the way that you look at your business. We've always looked at the business with best part of a, a five-year plan. And we were very, very fortunate that during the start of the pandemic, we were very, very strong with our business. And so that side of things didn't really have much of, a set of an effect. Six months in, when we saw that there was this delay to these projects and the sort of the, the delay in people going to hospital, that had a different effect because that was affecting people's family lives as well as their work lives because they may have had loved ones that needed to go to hospital and that side of things. So that was quite quite traumatic. But we we have a very, very good close knit team and we really honest, really straight with them right from the very beginning that we knew it was going to be tough. But if we work together and all pulled our weight a little bit, we would end up in a good place. And that has definitely been the been the case. We are not going to have a, the most successful year ever, but it's going to be very close. And would you say actually that you've learned an awful lot about your colleagues and also yourself during this time and how you've sort of managed your way through this together? Absolutely. We, we don't take anything for granted anymore. We've started doing different things to improve our business for the future. We've got a really good a really good green pathway. We've invested in electric vehicles for our chaps who are going to be back on the road soon. We've completely revamped our office, so it's much more modern and up to date going forward. So it's a better place for work for when the when the when the team come back to the office, and which is actually today. I think thirty percent of our team have come back to work today at the office, so that's really really exciting. Um, but we've also we've also learnt that we don't need to travel as much as we did. We've been able to re- reduce that. We've, obviously, with the way that the airplanes are at the moment, we've reduced our flights. We've reduced our road mileage because I think in the in the company we were probably doing two hundred thousand miles of road travel a year, and I think that in the last year is down to less than twenty thousand. So if we can carry on improving on those sort of things then it's been that's a good end to it and those two points there that sort of efficiency and also that focus on sustainability are two very positive things that have come out of a quite trying time and i think that's sort of a sign of what's to come isn't it in the sense that the way we do business in this country and indeed the wider world is going to be much changed and we're going to be focusing a lot more on how we can be more efficient and also flexible working practices for that sort of work life balance that we've um, sort of seen during this time too I completely agree. It's been really quite exciting the things that we've been talking about in our office the last couple of months with our with our visions for the future. And I think it is going to only improve. We've got a, a team of people ranging from early twenties to mid fifties and everybody's on board with the the way that we want to go forward in the future with being using much cleaner energy, being more efficient. And we have a we have a plan to be completely carbon neutral within a couple of years. And that's certainly very exciting when we're talking about a green recovery as well. And with 
talk of that paradoxically although we've talked about sort of how the business has been put on the back foot a little bit during this time by some of the effects of covid do you think that ultimately coming out of the other side of this the business is going to end up stronger for this experience well we're in a slightly difficult situation because our business is involved in radiotherapy and radiotherapy relies on government investment at the moment there is nowhere near enough investment from the government in radiotherapy and its associated services. There's not enough treatment machines. There's not enough radiographers. There's not enough physicists. There's not enough doctors. Once they are all in place and we can treat more patients, we'll be able to, we'll be able to catch up on the backlog. And that is really, really key. So the answer is yes, it will happen, but it is purely down to how the government decides to invest in radiotherapy services going forward. And that's probably one of the very important issues within your industry, especially that maybe the wider general public isn't necessarily aware of, isn't it? The fact that there is going to be a great deal of investment needed from, of course, some public sources to sort of get these services back up and running again going forward. Absolutely. And one of the, one of the things that we have seen in the last year is that there are certain cancer treatments that have been previously surgically based that we can now do with radiotherapy in a much more efficient way and much more COVID safe. And I think that will increase the need for more machines and more people again. So I think the future is exciting, but it is really is dependent on the, um, on the perspective of the, from the public and the support that we get from the public and better understanding of how good radiotherapy is for, for cancer patients, I think is something that the the whole of the country needs to adopt in a much stronger way. Mm. I think there are signs that the goodwill is there, though, aren't there? I mean, during this time, we've seen so many people taking to their doorsteps, for example, to applaud the efforts of their key workers. We saw that every Thursday for a period of time. So I think the goodwill is there, but it's essentially just making the general public a little bit more aware of the realities of what's going on behind the scenes and what is needed to essentially maybe put pressure on the country's leadership to make sure that the resources are going to be there going forward from here. Absolutely. I would say that. Um the radiotherapy services in the UK is absolutely fantastic. It's some of the best in the world. And we've got doctors and radiographers and nurses, physicists, and they are working beyond, above and beyond. And they are also, they don't get the recognition that they, that they deserve. And they have been running the services and keeping the services running during a pandemic when they've been having lots of uh, staff away for various different reasons. They've had to adapt to working, whether they've been working some of the work from home or from the office. It's all changed for them as well. So, yes, the goodwill is there, but the goodwill from the staff in the hospitals is incredible, and we need to we need to recognise and support that. And I think that needs to be it needs to be recognised from the top down. That's exactly it, isn't it? Because when we think of leadership in this country, I think there is a culture of thinking about and associating leadership with sort of political leadership, with celebrity, perhaps with sports and maybe leadership at that base level, the sort of heroes in our hospitals, the heroes in our communities, that maybe isn't quite as recognised as it should be. Yes, I I, I think so. And I think the more more it's recognised and the, the higher profile it gets, the more mainstream it becomes. 
and it needs to become mainstream. Cancer services in this country are fantastic, but they always need investment. They do. That's exactly right. And thinking about what the future might bring now, just before we do wrap things up, because I'm conscious that we are starting to run short of time this morning, Steve. Um, We can be a little bit optimistic that the social restrictions are going to be gone over the next few months with the government's roadmap from lockdown there now for all to see. But as we do hopefully emerge from this, what are you hoping to see in the next 12 months? Because there's still quite a way for the industry to go, it sounds, before everything is running as it should be. True. Um, well, I wish I had a crystal ball. I think common sense everywhere is really important. Taking things bit by bit, not stretching ourselves and not stretching our resources and not stretching the the pandemic to such a point where it might have another lockdown. So I think slowly, slowly, and eventually we will get to a point where we'll be as close to being as free as we were. And for the business, just a little bit more specifically, where exactly are you hoping to be in 12 months' time in light of that? Uh, in 12 months' time, I would like to be in a position where we can look at a new five-year plan and see progressive growth. That would be really, really exciting. I think at the moment we are cautious but we're very optimistic because we've got really, really good equipment being reused by really, really good people. And I think the growth of that business, however slow it might be, will continue. So I am quite optimistic. In fact, probably really optimistic, but as long as it's done in a slowly, cautious way. Mm. It has been so hard to plan for the future, hasn't it, during this period of time? Because those year long plans have been reduced to essentially weeks and days even because we've not been able to really look too far ahead for so long and hopefully now that is starting to change and I have to say Steve it's been a real eye-opener for me welcoming you onto the show today and discussing exactly what's been going on in the industry so once again thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on the program today and it would be a real pleasure for me in fact to welcome you back onto the show in future as we start to see what exactly is going on in the sector to catch up on exactly what is going on and maybe understand a bit more about where the business is at at that point in time as well oh that would be fantastic i'd look forward to that that would be great and thanks again i would as well steve and do also most importantly take care and stay safe because we're not quite out of the woods yet but we are almost there and thanks very much and coming up next on the programme today, we'll be joined by England's 1966 FIFA World Cup hat-trick hero, Sir Jeff Hurst, um, a renowned legend, of course, from his professional football career among West Ham United and Stoke City supporters. So Jeff is probably most well known for that famous day back in 1966, where his hat-trick helped, helped England win the Jewel Romay Trophy, which remains to date its first and only World Cup triumph. That will be coming up next. And now, ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, we extend a very warm welcome to a special guest in Sir Jeff Hurst, who joins us on the programme today. Um, Sir Jeff, good morning. Good morning. How are you? Very good, thank you. It certainly is a uh, wonderful uh, day for it, isn't it? It is. The weather's pretty good at the moment. I hope it might last. 
Absolutely. Oh, thunderstorm, it's, it's lovely. It is certainly after a storm. And um, speaking of storms, actually, I'd like to start with just a hypothetical scenario. If we imagine if we fast forward two years, Sir Jeff, let's imagine it's December 2022 and it's the World Cup final and England are there. We could be playing defending champions France. We could be playing the Germans, anybody. And England are 2-0 up in the 90th minute. So victory is all but guaranteed. And Harry Kane, with a brace to his name already, is brought down in the penalty area. So he has the opportunity to make history by emulating yourself and becoming only the second ever player to score a World Cup final hat-trick. Would you honestly want him to bury it or would you prefer him to fluff his lines? I'd want him to bury it. Um, I've asked that question, again, that question asked a bit. Um, I've had a good run uh, with this record and Goodness me, that's how it's nearly 60 years, I guess, if, if uh, we're looking at 2022. No, I'd want him to bury it. A, a for him, he's a fantastic player, a uh, tremendous goal scorer. And if anybody I'd like to um, repeat what I achieved, uh, it would be someone like Harry, who's a f- fantastic professional with, with Spurs in England. So absolutely. And I want England to do well. I mean, I I'm want England to be successful. I, I'm an England supporter. I'm a football supporter. And I just, I really want the country to do well in, in anything, in, in all sports, and particularly in my sport. So I will not want to bury it. And I'll be absolutely, I will be as delighted as anybody in, in the country um, if, if he can achieve that. But, but more importantly, that England, England have achieved what we achieved all those years ago. And it's important that the team uh, do it as opposed to Harry doing it individually. Mm. And that's how I felt about my. Uh, my achievements about the team being successful, whether I got two or three, in one sense is, is uh, wouldn't say immaterial, but it's about the team winning. It's all about the team. Mm. Exactly. Consideration of the wider team is a cornerstone of leadership, which is, of course, what the Leaders' Council is all about, recognising that and promoting that for the future. But if we sort of flash back 54 years to that moment in 1966 when you were bearing down on goal, I understand that a lot of people always ask you the question about whether you actually knew there were people on the pitch at the time. And there's quite a bit of a joke about that. But there's something else that I'm actually interested in. I understand. We all know what happened. The ball nestled in the top corner. England won 4-2 and lifted the World Cup. But you've often described that as being a mishit finish sometimes before, haven't you? Yes, I think people... Um, I, I've, I, I, I recall exactly what's amazing. I can recall exactly what I was thinking. Um, at that moment, obviously a crucial moment in, in the game towards the end of the game. I knew the game was nearly finished. I, as the ball came to me initially, I was actually, with my back to goal, I was actually looking at the referee uh, 10 yards from me in the middle of the park and he was waving at the whistle in his mouth but waving play on with both arms, indicating quite clearly, of course, that the game was nearly finished. So when I got to the edge of the box, I'm, I now think of the game is nearly finished. I'm thinking, if the game's nearly finished, I'm now going to whack this ball with everything I've got left. But I'm thinking if it goes beyond the beyond the sand into the crowd by the time the ball boy gets it back to uh, Hans-Tilkowski the German keeper by that time surely the game has got to be over but as I always jokingly say uh, I miss hit it and it and it flew in but I was thinking about wasting time not so much about uh, but certainly what I was going to do which, which sorry, I was going to hit it as hard as I possibly could after those two hours and it just goes to show sometimes that hit and hope taking a punt can sometimes be the way forward because I think it shows that in any form of leadership, be it in sport or in business, you can't go sometimes without taking risks. Absolutely, yes, it, absolutely. Yes, sir. I mean, I wasn't in that position with risk in a sense because the game was unfinished, but that, that, that philosophy is right. You're just going to 
there's an element of, 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 of risks uh, of, of making this, but it's going to be a control on that risk, not not stupid risks in, in mm. all walks of life. An element of maybe doing something that you're not too sure about, but sometimes in life you've, you've got to have a go. You can't get be successful in terms of long term leadership if you're just always sitting on the fence and not taking any chances. I don't think that's where the great leaders will get to by having that kind of philosophy. You've got to move forward. And the last time that you actually joined us on the Leaders' Council podcast and spoke with my colleague Jonathan White, uh, Sir Jeff, was back in February, of course. And that was a point where we knew a little bit about COVID-19, which was looming, but that was before it really took hold in the UK and really turned our world upside down. And before that, this summer was meant to be all about the England national team once again, who were going to the European Championships. But that's in a way now been replaced by the National Health Service. And we've been supporting the health service and applauding their efforts. And we're hanging out thank you banners, displaying drawings of rainbows, very much in the same vein that you'd see the George Cross adorning most households during a major tournament year. Do you feel there are parallels between the sense of national unity that we discovered during this time and the spirit of 1966? Oh, absolutely. Particularly the, the recognition of the NHS with what they're doing. And I think it was a great idea uh, during that period where they asked everybody to stand outside their houses and clap and congratulate the NHS for what, what they were going through. And I think it's, it's been criticism in the past, of course, the NHS on how it's run, but there's enough, enough funding for it. And, and so on. But really, we begin to realise during these turbulent times how absolutely vital and uh, important it is to have a, a health service that works efficiently and to see individually the, the amount of people who are interviewed almost every day on the t- terrible circumstances they were having to work under with with masks and so on. And, and also, it was also, for me, fantastic. All these people from different countries all over the world that were working in our country uh, with the same u- u- union to, to be successful and uh, help people to survive uh, COVID. Uh, very heartwarming. And I think that kind of feeling, I, I probably, as a player in 66, I probably wasn't aware at that time of the unity of the country. I've learned that over the years when I talk to people um, who were about 66 and they will tell you what a great day it was and where they were remembered exactly what they were doing and the fantastic stories. So that identified then as that great unification of the country, 30 million plus viewers, the biggest view, TV viewing audience we've had. So today, um, it's certainly uh, through this pandemic and the NHS has been absolutely magnificent and every single person, uh, some very fantastic and heartwarming stories of how they're dealing with this unbelievably uh, difficult situation from a health perspective, uh, fantastic. So that was really heartwarming to get out and cheer and clap on the balcony um, for the NHS, fantastic. Mm, certainly inspiring what we've been seeing uh, from the uh, the front line as well. And flashing back just to 1966 again, just from a leadership point of view, um, the manager that made all of that possible and oversaw yourself and your teammates on the, ro- the road to the World Cup was, of course, Sir Alf Ramsey. What sets somebody like him or Ron Greenwood apart from other coaches? Because I understand that both men had a profound impact on you, not just as a player, but also as a person as well. Well, I think that, I was very fortunate. <laughs> You're talking about coming to the, the, the fortunate in your life to be at, at the time when I was physically at my at my best during those those, those years. 
um, born earlier or later, I wouldn't have been around uh, physically enough, and clever enough, and technically good enough to, to be around, to be a good player. But at that time, I'm involved with arguably the greatest coach um, we've seen in this country, Harry Redknapp, who's been around a long time, would still say he's, he's the best coach he has worked with. And that's, just, that's 50 years Harry's been in the business plus. And then moving on to, to having a, a national level, a great manager. Uh, and the two coincided in a sense because Ron Greenwood always always said that and felt that he, as a, as a, a coach of a League One club, uh, or Premier League as it is today, it's, it's important you prepare the, and teach and coach the players to be prepared to be playing in the best company, playing for England. And so he prepared us to be playing for England. And then Alfred Ramsey knew the players to pick. Um, discipline was his big skill. Making sure those players were disciplined uh, in the right formation. Uh, so the two combined moved from one to the other. Uh, how, how can you possibly be as, as fortunate um, as, as I was? It was just uh, amazing. So I think Ron was, I think there are two different aspects of football in terms of leadership. You've got a, you've got a, a coach, it's a team coach, who's a teacher, effectively. Then you've got the other kind of character, who's a manager, who manages people. May not be quite so good technically on the coaching aspects, but by that stage, the wrong reason of passing a coach person to Alf, who then managed from a discipline point of view, because you're managing people from the whole country. You're not just managing a club. You're managing people, uh, different characters, and from all over the country is, is slightly more demanding job in that respect. So you've got to hone that lot of all over, different characters, strengths, players, into a unit to play for, uh, to represent England. So Alf Ramsey was, was very good at that. His discipline was, was fantastic. So the com- combination of the two, uh, you can't say I can't be as, I'm so blessed to be as fortunate as I was to come across these two fantastic uh, uh, people in my life, in my, in my football life. And I suppose for every Sir Alf Ramsey and Ron Greenwood um, as well that you have worked with, there are also coaches out there that one might work with that perhaps might not get the best out of players during their, um, of course, their peak. But just, of course, just but just as much as you can learn from, of course, coaches that do get the best out of players, you can learn as much from less effective leaders as you can from good ones as well, because that experience can ultimately mould you as a person, can't it? Oh yes, I think it, yes, I think leadership is important and coaching and teaching is important. Um, and, and the great teachers and coaches and managers ha- have that skill. Sometimes it's an innate skill in, in management. They have it. But I think um, you you can learn, if you're central enough, to learn from people who are uh, teaching you or coaching you. It's not the right way to go about teaching you or coaching or managing you. You can learn uh, from that. If you're a player, you can learn what you think is a good coach what you think is a good manager, which you can take into your career after playing into uh, coaching or management so you can learn as much from people making mistakes you can learn also from making your own mistakes mm. you can do something in the past that think well, like that was a really stupid thing to do and I'll make sure I'm not going to do that again and it, it is important in all of life you learn from your mistakes people will make mistakes uh, young people will make mistakes but it's learning it's the silly people who make mistakes and don't learn from it, continue making those same mistakes throughout their life and becoming maybe unsuccessful throughout their, their career. 
completely understand exactly where you're coming from. I think it's almost impossible to become an effective leader in our profession without having that learning curve of making mistakes and learning from them exactly. Um, during your conversation um, with Jonathan back in February, um, Sir Jeff, I know that you and him discussed at length some of the big inspirations and influences on you throughout your career and throughout adulthood. But I understand that your love for football and obsession with the sport actually started a lot earlier, even if you were toing and fro between football and cricket somewhat at the time. I read somewhere that during your teenage years, you were once fined one pound for disturbing the peace after consistently kicking a football into a neighbour's garden. Is that true? <laughs> Not many people know that, as the saying goes. Yeah, that's absolutely true. When in in those uh, medieval days, you there were, you weren't football pitches or place very rarely where you could play. You um, in our road in Greenway, as it was called in Chelmsford, we that three or four lads <coughs> lived quite, quite close to it. It's a cul-de-sac, it's not a big long road um, with a round with a circle at the bottom. So there wasn't a great deal of traffic anyway. A because it was a, a cul-de-sac, and B because there weren't as many cars. No, there as many cars in those days. So uh, we played across, across the across the road, um, and you used to have to learn to chip the ball above the pavement to hit the uh, the goal at the back. The goal was about a, a two foot wide semicircular where the tree where a tree was planted. That was the goal, and so it's always a free to play football. But amongst those houses where we lived and played, there was a, a family and a, a boy that didn't play football. Um, I think he he was interested in. Uh, flying, you know, and making balsa wood gliders, and uh, nice guy, but just didn't didn't play football. And on this particular garden, uh, of course, occasionally the ball finished up there. And crazily enough, they um, took us to court, and uh, we actually got fined. This is absolutely true. We got fined a pound for kicking the ball in the neighbour's garden. Astounding when you think about it, isn't it? Mm. And when you there's nowhere else to play apart from the street, and uh, we were actually. But that, that happens. That happens. You'll, you'll hear stories. We see stories of neighbours falling out over different things. You see those those stories every day. But that was certainly a true story. Absolutely, absolutely true. And during that time, um, who was it during childhood that you really looked up to that you thought was an inspiration to you and made you really think that going into professional sport was going to be the route for you? Well, my father was obviously the, the the biggest inspiration for me because he was an ex-player. He, he played uh, lower down for Oldham Rochdale. We actually moved south from Manchester. We, we, I was born in Ashton under line. We actually moved south to Chelmsford when I was pr- probably, I was the eldest of three, when I was probably about seven or eight into this particular street uh, called Greenways. And he, what he did with me, I think was had a big influence going back to that third gold in the World Cup in many years in the back garden and when we moved on to a, we moved up market to a council house somewhere in Chelmsford and he would have me in the back garden teaching me to kick with my left foot and so I at that time and even today it's, it's uh, you don't see that many players that are uh, completely two-footed and I was maybe not as two-footed as Bobby Charlton even Jack Charlton his brother didn't know which was his best foot he, he was fantastic but I was pretty pretty um, um Two-footed, and a lot of the hat tricks I scored were one right, one left, and a header. So um, he, had, he had a huge influence. I wasn't, I wasn't a child. Although I had a football, footballing father, I wasn't a child whose father pushed him into being a footballer. He, he um, and what happened with my my story is a friend of my father. I know the guy's name called Jock Redfern. Unbeknownst to me, he wrote to. 
two clubs uh, for a trial. He wrote to Arsenal and he wrote to West Ham United when I was just after school leading age. Uh, West Ham uh, replied. They asked me to come for a trial. Um, I went for a trial with them and uh, they saw something in me and took me on the what was called the ground staff then, uh, almost at school leading age. And uh, so I wasn't necessarily thinking I've got to go into football. It's just that that's how it, how it happened. Uh, although I enjoyed football and I was pretty reasonably good, there was no big focus on me uh, as a great schoolboy player. Nobody was scouting me or, uh, you know, writing to my parents saying, come and have a trial at this club or that club. Uh, but a friend of my father um, wrote the letter. So that's, that's how it happened. But the problem I had during those early years, I enjoyed cricket as well. And I was messing about as I... I kind of put it between the two sports which was hugely detrimental to me in my early, early development either as a cricketer or either as a footballer and it wasn't until Ron Greenwood um, miraculously tried me I was a midfield player then or centre half at school um, he uh, said I'm going to try you up front he put me up front in the game and then my, my whole football career and life changed dramatically and I suppose as well, what might have also done it for football as opposed to cricket was that fateful match uh, for Essex over in Egberth against Lancashire, wasn't it? Yes, a lot of people know that. Uh, one game, uh, one game, the sort of went messing about between the two. I had one first-class game for Essex, at, as you said, Egberth in um, in Liverpool. And I think I got naught and, and naught not out, I think. So, I mean, we won the game, funny. I thought a couple of catches, but uh, Essex actually won the game um, v Lancashire up up in their territory. But that was that was a real problem for me. I think I could have done some advice maybe earlier to say, make your mind up. But when you look back, when even today cricket goes through till, what, September? Whereas football starts in July, so there's a huge overlap. And I'm still playing cricket until September, missing pre-season, early games. For those two or three years, extremely detrimental to me doing well at one or the other. Uh, until Ron Green would just put me up front and that was it and from a standing start I think my first season around I think September, October I, I played my first game up front against Liverpool and I think I played about 23, 24 games no 27, 28 games and scored 14 goals like one in two from a standing start for a mm. midfield player so um, quite changed dramatically um, that was 60 62, 63 season the three years before the World Cup and when we think about leadership in football, the role of a goalkeeper, of course, not related to your own career, is to essentially build from the back and command this penalty area. And one goalkeeper that you played with, not just for England, but also for Stoke City in the later years in your career, was Gordon Banks. I have to confess, as a boyhood Port Vale supporter, I am relieved that incredible talents like yourself and Gordon are no longer occupying the dressing room there. And I did have the fortune of meeting Gordon when I was a young boy as well. But... What was Gordon like as a leader on the field? Well, first of all, he, he was a great... Uh, two things for Gordon. He was a, a great keeper. Um, I would still say the greatest English keeper we've ever had uh, and one of the best keepers in the world. Um, absolutely fantastic. Funny enough, I didn't realise... It's funny how you look at... I see when Gordon passed away, naturally, you know, sadly, um, a few months ago, and obviously it's showing a lot of videos of Banksy, uh, programs about Banksy and the great saves he made and the save against Pelé and so on. But I didn't realise how um, athletic he was, uh, how quick he was, athletic, um, springing forward to 
smother balls and not just tipping balls at it. Agility-wise, he was absolutely fantastic. But as a character, he was a joker. He was a, a very kind, very mild-mannered, lovely lovely man, the nicest guy you could possibly wish to meet. But he was a joker. He always had a, a joke for you. Every time you met sometime, he'd you, have a new joke. And uh, people um, talk about him and who are close to him and remember what a what a, um, a joke he was. And they're the two things that really stick out for, Man- for Banksy. And we were very lucky. Very lucky, of course, to have that kind of and you need that kind of quality um, as a world-class player. When you win a World Cup, you need four or five players, which we were very fortunate to have in our team. Um, uh, Banks is one of the world-class players, along with Bobby Moore and, and Bobby Charlton. Uh, Jimmy Greaves didn't play with a world-class player, in, but in the squad, and Ray Wilson, our left back, I'd always argue, was a world-class player. So you need that kind of quality initially if you're going to be successful in winning a World Cup from world-class players. And Banks, he was up there, w- w- not with the best, the best for me. And another thing from during your days at Stoke City as well was that a talented but then troubled young midfielder by the name of Alan Hudson first joined the uh, the club around uh, the early 70s. And I know that you were asked to take him in as a lodger to provide him with a stable home during his spell there by then-manager Tony Waddington. Now, I've spoken to a great many directors and executives on this programme before, and all of them describe trust as being a key cornerstone of leadership. How did it feel for you knowing that Waddington trusted you to that degree to ask that of you? Well, I was extremely flat. It was a huge compliment that he saw me as a, and of course over the years, hopefully that, that had come out. That's important that uh, you have those kind of qualities as a player that A, he saw when I was at West Ham and B, obviously he acquired me to play at Stoke City. So I was, I was initially first fairly surprised, I think it's, <laughs> And certainly, my wife was fairly surprised when I when I said I need her permission for for me to um, uh, allow Alan Hudson to stay with us in that, those early periods. But what he saw, of course, in me was uh, which is, I can see in myself. I was, I was a very disciplined person, a very disciplined player, which you have to be. I didn't really have, I would say, the qualities of the world class players like the Bobby Charles and the Jimmy Green and the Bobby Moores. So uh, you need to have bring all the other characteristics to be successful at, at that level, to compete in their level. And discipline was one of them. And, and um, obviously, Tony Waddington saw that. And if he wanted to put, he trusted me that I was disciplined enough to hopefully push some of my discipline into Alan Hudson, which we did. And um, in those early six months and year, a couple of years, he was come up a bit heavier from Chelsea. He lost a bit of weight. And uh, although he was a little bit indisciplined himself, hence they needed him to, to stay with me, what he was was a fantastic player. He is uh, was he is one of the, the, the most fantastic players I think I've come across. The, across, but not hit the best because I think he was a certain uh, slightly bit of ill discipline within his, his general life. And you need at the top, and I'm talking at the top being, being an England player. But I compare him purely on ability compared with ability up in the France Beckenbauer mould mm. without any shadow of a doubt. He, he was that good. So it was a bit of fun and enjoyable times. Uh, getting uh, serving Alan Hudson the cups of tea about eight o'clock at night when we had our tea at our home for those uh, those few months, and I think he, it was a, a big help to getting Alan back on track and performing brilliantly for the club. And following on from your days with the uh, the Potters, you went on, of course, to play football in Ireland and the United States before the end of your career. 
Did you feel that the dressing room and indeed leadership culture at those clubs differed from perhaps what you've been used to back in England? Um, well, I think Ireland was just a short spell with, with Cork Celtic, so it's hard to judge and make any comparisons. And of course, in, in America, it was the early days of, um, of football in America. Uh, and I thoroughly enjoyed my time at Seattle. So it's difficult to make a, uh, a comparison. I think I was fortunate hey, at West Ham that we, it was a great time at the club. And I was fortunate to play with Stoke City uh, for three years. And it was a fantastic time for that particular club. They won, of course, the, uh, the, the League Cup before I went there. Mm. Sadly, they knocked us out in the semi final. So it was a, a marvellous time for, for that particular club. And very close. We actually, I think we played Ajax in, in, the, in the following year in, in Europe. I think we only lost on, on a goal over two, over the two games against Ajax. So it was a great time for the club. So I'm very fortunate to have played uh, for, for those two clubs. Only a short spell at West Brom, of course, but I think, uh, as I always jokingly say, I think I was past my uh, sell-by date then. Um, West Brom was a fantastic club, but I was... I wasn't at my best and I thought it was time to retire which I did and Johnny Giles was in charge and I think uh, West, West Brom actually got up that year but I made very little contribution to that success that club had so um, yes it, uh, the, the American experience was just fantastic I never saw it as long term being over there that was a, a, a brilliant few months with my wife and um, uh, two daughters and my wife and she was uh, pregnant with her daughter over there so that was, that was a good time completely different Ireland was just a just a I always joke about Ireland I was there for about I think a month I think it was and I enjoyed the experience and I earned a few quid and I think it paid for, for the kitchen in one of my houses back in England new kitchen <laughs> So it certainly went really well I suppose in the waning days of um, your career um, was it humbling that you realised that people were beginning to actually look up to you and be inspired by you as a legend as in perhaps the same way that you were looking to the likes of Bobby Moore earlier on in your career? Yes, I think it's, I think the, that kind of, uh, whatever the word, correct word is, I don't know, being looked at and, and revered sort of comes maybe, uh, maybe longer, maybe in longer, not some sort of immediately after you've finished playing, but in the long term when, um, uh, and I always joke with people introduce me either to other people or introduce me on stage as a legend and, and I always joke and say you, you only start being called a legend when you're over 70 and I think the, the whatever the word is I'm not sure adulation or recognition or whatever it sort of happens and you think more about it or it happens and occurs more in later years not, not certainly um, I felt during the time after I finished playing or managing or playing for England during my football career. And I think I, I went into business for 20 years. I don't think anybody looked necessarily looked at me when I was in business as necessarily a legend or somebody they could look up. So I, I felt that kind of attitude probably has happened in, in my later years, probably. For those younger generations, just lastly, Sir Jeff, before we do wrap things up, um, for people who are aspiring to become leaders in business, politics, sport, or indeed any walk of life, if you could offer any advice to them based upon your experience, what advice would you give them? Simple advice in, in, in a sentence is really, I learned a lot from Alf Ramsey. He was, a, he was a boss. I think a boss sometimes has, has natural characteristics. You can learn about management or management courses. But there's certain characteristics when the successful bosses 
is, is within him to start with. But one of the things I learned about Brand is I've taken into my, my business life and even my fa- uh, talking to my family life, if they're involved in business, is when you're managing people, you manage them as a group. Anybody that doesn't want to be part of that group, you find is, is, is backing against what you want to achieve as a boss, you move them out. And I think that's a simple, one of the most simple uh, lessons I've learned during the Alf Ramsey period. Even some of the great players I felt should have been in the squad, possibly at, at the time without mentioning names. Um, and you hear stories about this player not, you know, completely complying with everything and they're, they're left out or they're not even in the squad. And I felt that was, even, and even some with great ability, I, I think probably didn't make it. And I think a lot of it stems down to they didn't want to be, they wanted to be, you know, a lone champion, successful person, didn't want to be part of, of the group. So that, that for me is the, the key message, the single key message I would pass on to anybody who wants to manage a group of people in any walk of life. And ties in very nicely with a quote from one Nelson Mandela, in fact, that surround yourself with people who are better than you are in some ways. And I think that is incredibly sound advice indeed. Yes, it is. Very good. Good advice. Yes. So, Jeff, thank you ever so much for joining us on the uh, the programme this morning. It's been an absolute pleasure having you with us to discuss your life, career and leadership. And it would be a pleasure to welcome you back on the programme in future to discuss further. Pleasure. Thank you. Enjoy, enjoy being part of the programme. Thank you. Likewise, thank you ever so much for your time again. This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.